religions have a way of becoming politicized. And uh, even though I was just remarking the other day, even though our laws, our cultural and social mores all emanate from religion, uh, the greatest conflicts that we have in the world today are the consequence of religion. We can see that uh, looking no further than Israel right now with its desperate battle with Hamas, which seeks to destroy the Israeli state. But we'll get to all of these issues in due course. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, and simply search out the free Podbean app and download the, uh, or subscribe rather, to the Jamie Dury Show when you search it out there. Or you can use your native podcast aggregator app, and you can simply search out the Jamie Dury Show there. Whether you use an Android device or an Apple device, doesn't matter. You'll be able to find us, and please, when you do, share the show with friends, give us a five-star review. We make an effort to give you as good a show as we can. And the more five-star reviews we get, the more shares we get, the faster the show will grow, and the more we'll be able to do uh, for you in terms of bringing you greater offerings. So please do that for us. Uh, We would greatly, greatly appreciate it. And as always, if you wish to contact me directly to either ask a question or ask me to cover a particular topic, simply email me at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. That's jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. So, the war in Hamas, with Hamas rages on. Now, I want to hit this before we get to these holidays, um, because we should be giving thanks for the blessings that have been bestowed upon us, and we should give thanks that we are not in the middle of such a brutal conflict, and a brutal conflict that was completely the result of the actions of Hamas, not the actions of the Israelis. I, I despise this attempt by people and governments around the world to try and establish some form of moral equivalency between the Israelis and the Hamas forces. There is no moral equivalency. The Israelis don't go and just blatantly and deliberately with premeditation kill women and children. The Israelis don't take babies and children and behead them. The Israelis don't cut fetuses out of the stomachs of pregnant women on the part of the Palestinians or anyone else. They just don't do it. And any attempt to try and paint a moral equivalence here, uh, here because they occasionally are forced to bomb hospitals or schools simply because the forces of Hamas and the terrorists are using those, what are ordinarily sacred uh, locations, immune from wartime, uh, as bases of operation, storing munitions underneath there, uh, putting networks of tunnels underneath there. And so they make them a legitimate target. And the Israelis give warnings before they do that. They don't just go in uh, blindly and just 
seek and destroy. They try and minimize civilian casualties as much as they can. But Hamas doesn't do any of this. Hamas goes out and they slaughter, they torture, they maim, they behead. And then they have the audacity to record these things on film. Now, they had to know that copies of this film were going to make it to the internet. They probably wanted it to make it to the internet because they want people to see the brutality that they visited upon the Israelis because they hate the Israelis. And they also want a brutal retaliatory response on the part of Israel so they can try and use that against the Israeli government and against the Israeli people. But I don't think it's going to work. 1,400 Israelis, many women and children, were killed on that fateful day, October 7th. What I don't understand, and I think we can get interim explanations for this, but I don't think we're going to get a complete explanation until this whole thing is settled and some time has elapsed and cooler heads prevail with the temp temperature going down a little bit to find out just how Hamas was able to do this. The network of tunnels that they built, uh, knowing when to bring what munitions and what supplies where, and knowing when, when the defenses would be the weakest, when they would be the least detectable. This was a monumental effort that took place over an extended period of time, and I really can't believe that the Israeli intelligence services, which are normally on top of their game, did not pick up any of this activity. So a lot of questions are going to have to be legitimately asked about that. This is not to forgive anything Hamas did, but we have to find out why this opportunity uh, was allowed to present itself to Hamas to exploit. As far as the Palestinian people, the innocent Palestinian people that are there, some of them are not innocent. Some of them are joined Hamas. Some of them have been taught to hate Israel and all Israelis since they were old enough to understand what an Israeli was and understand that they were Palestinians. But uh, of the legitimate, peace-loving Palestinian people who just want to be left alone and live in peace, we understand that this is a horrible ordeal for you. But this ordeal was visited upon you by Hamas, and you should know that because you live under Hamas rule. Hamas governs the Gaza Strip. Well, at least they did before this. You know this. So when the Palestinians are out there complaining, the ones that you do see complaining, this is genocide, this is genocide. Well, what was it when they killed 1,400 Israelis? That wasn't a form of genocide? The people, my point is, the people on the Palestinian side who are complaining that what the Israelis are doing is genocide are people that are engaging in a little bit of hypocrisy because having lived as they have under the brutal occupation of Hamas, for them to now refer to what the Israelis have been forced to do as genocide is ridiculous. It's an hypocrisy. And so my support stays with the Israeli people. My prayers go out to all people. But I think that any attempt to minimize this, any attempt to negotiate with, this pe with these people is going to be futile. Uh, and it's only going to have the effect of lengthening this conflict and maybe allowing Hamas to escape so they can rebuild. I'll never forget, and those of you who are old enough to remember, back in 1979 when the Shah of Iran was deposed, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, 
and the Ayatollahs began ruling that country. Some things happened. The first thing that happened was the American embassy in Tehran was taken over, and we had a number of hostages held for almost a year. I think there were 59 or something of that order. They were held for over a year. Jimmy Carter was an impotent president, couldn't figure out a way to get them out, didn't have the goal, the the chutzpah, the balls, to order a military operation. He finally did, but he had so underfunded the military that the military was a disaster. It was a scaled-down commando raid. They required at least five choppers to carry out the operation. They used eight. Three or four, three of them went down in the desert in a sandstorm. The other one developed a mechanical failure, and Colonel Charles Beckwith who was the man who started the Delta Force at his recommendation, had to cancel the mission, and um, it broke his heart to have to do it. But the Russians, at that time, the Soviet Union was still intact. Just to give you a sense of perspective, they commented on this matter, saying that, um, you know, one of our, our embassies could be taken hostage, too. We wouldn't have 59 hostages or 53 hostages. We'd have 53 martyrs, but we wouldn't have 53 hostages, meaning they would go in and they would destroy everything and teach the Iranians a lesson the world would never forget so that they would never try this sort of criminal aggression in the future. And they were willing to sacrifice the lives of those hostages. Now, That may be easy to say when you don't have a family member as a hostage. So I understand the humanity of the Israelis wanting to recover the hostages uh, that are now held uh, in Gaza by Hamas, many of them women and children. I also understand their international concern because many of these hostages are not Israelis. They're foreign nationals. We have a number of American hostages there in Hamas's custody. But my question becomes, how far down this road do we go? Even with the idea that we want to bring every hostage home safe, in all decisions, in all matters, there's a trade-off. How far down the road of salvaging every hostage do we wish to go? before we wind up going so far down the road that we allow Hamas to survive, we allow them to reconstitute themselves, and we allow them to visit yet another day, like October 7th, upon the Israeli people or others again, resulting in even more death and even more hostages and having to deal with it again. I think the Israelis are attempting to thread a very fine needle, and God bless them if they can do it, where they're trying to get as many hostages back as possible so that they can minimize the leverage that Hamas has. And instead of giving a 10-day respite for every 50 hostages that are released, they've reduced it to four days. They're trying to minimize that number, and I suspect they're going to try and use their very good intelligence forces to find out where the remaining hostages are once there are 
a limited number of them because they're accounting for all these hostages. And then you may see uh, a raid on Entebbe-like uh, raid ma- made if it turns out these hostages are in a central location. If it turns out that they're only scattered here and there, uh, then it becomes much more problematic. That's why it's very imperative that they get this number down to as manageable a figure as possible. But it's no question in my mind that by hook or by crook, the Israelis and the world, indeed, cannot afford to allow Hamas to survive. They must be wiped, sponged, and purged from the face of the earth so that this sort of thing never happens again. If they are allowed to get away with it, it will embolden other uh, terrorist forces like Hezbollah uh, to act against the state of Israel and the Western powers. So that's my take on, on that. The other thing I wish to speak of is we've been speaking about the indictments against President Trump in past shows. We've been speaking about Joe Biden's corruption, his continued accelerated mental decline. Uh, we've been discussing all these things. And the overarching story you get in the mainstream media is that Trump must be opposed so that we can avoid fascism returning to the White House because the Trump regime was a fascist regime. Well, I'd like someone to define fascism for me in such a way that the definition comports with what we saw during the Trump Presidency. I'm going to give you the definition of fascism as it's defined in uh, one of many internet sites. And the epitome of fascist regimes were the totalitarian regimes of uh, the Nazi state and um, Mussolini in Italy. Uh, communists, <coughs> excuse me, are not fascists, but both communists and fascists are totalitarians. They just arrive at totalitarianism by going to different directions. It's rather like circling the globe. You can go right, and eventually you'll get to the same spot on the other side. You can go left, and you'll get to the same spot on the other side. But fascism is described as a far-right, authoritarian, ultra-nationalist political ideology and movement characterized by a dictatorial leader, centralized autocracy, militarism, forcible suppression of opposition, belief in a natural social hierarchy, subordination of individual interests for the perceived good of the nation or race, and strong regimentation of society and the economy. Now, let's take that and break it down. First of all, you can hardly call Trump far right. He was right of center, maybe, but not far right. I've said this before. Trump may have wound up doing things that you might describe as conservative, but Trump did not arrive at the conservative courses of action he took through an ideological lens. Trump is a businessman, and he carries with him in all things a businessman's pragmatism. And so many of the decisions, most of the decisions that he arrived at, he did through a careful analysis of the facts and his judgment dictated to him 
that this method or this course of action was the one that made the most logical business sense. And it just happened that his logic would very often lead him to taking conservative positions. Uh, but it's not because he had an ideological bent in that regard, okay? So let's just make sure we're clear on that. Let's go next in line on this uh, definition here. Make it a little light. Okay. Um, autocracy or well, ultra-nationalist. Well, I don't think you could call him authoritarian or ultra-nationalist. Yes, he wanted people to believe in the country again. He was very patriotic, and his uh, supporters also uh, expressed a level of patriotism. But that was nothing different than what I saw in my youth when Ronald Reagan, following the malaise and the despair of the Carter years, came along and made people feel good about being an American again. Simply because you feel good about being an American and you express a love of your country and all the blessings it's bestowed upon you does not make you an ultra-nationalist. An ultra-nationalist is a person who has requires you to pledge a loyalty to the state and to the detriment of all other things, so you have to go to the state and so forth. That's not Trump. Um, autocracy. I don't think he was an autocrat at all. Uh, <clears throat> when he managed um, many crises and the COVID crises or the crises in, in um, these cities when Black Lives Matter was burning down cities and taking over police departments, you didn't see Trump going in and mobilizing and nationalizing the military or the National Guard, directing them to take things back. He let the local authorities handle it. He offered help, as any president would or should, but he didn't force them to take federal help. So I thought that you can accuse him of being an autocrat, because if he were, we wouldn't have had police stations in, in Seattle and other places uh, being run by lunatics. We wouldn't have had many of the riots we've had. We would have seen a suppression of those things straight away. So we didn't see that. We don't see forcible suppression of opposition. A lot of opposition was allowed to be had. The entire media was opposition. We didn't see a natural social hierarchy. In fact, people of minority extraction now support Trump more than ever in the current polls. Over 40% of black men support Donald Trump. That was almost unthinkable years ago that 40% of black Americans would support a Republican candidate, but they are because they realized things were better for them under Trump. So you can't say there was even a national hierarchy where uh, the, the white people, white supremacy, you know, that, not true. He was trying to use the philosophy of a, a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think he did a, a very, very good job. So you can't say, and you can't call him a militarist either, because believing in a strong military and funding it in the, per, in the interests of national defense and self-preservation is not synonymous with being a militarist or militarism. A militarist is someone who's using military force to export and colonize and subjugate other peoples, the way Japan did in the Pacific during World War II, uh, the way the Germans did in Eastern Europe. Uh, we didn't do that. In fact, in point of fact, 
even though Donald Trump was a proponent of having a strong military, as many Republican presidents were, Donald Trump ended wars, brought people home, brought men home that were uh, deployed in foreign shores, didn't start new wars, and through his strength of character and his strength on military policy, discouraged and dissuaded enemies of the United States around the world from engaging in the sort of uh, conduct that would result in embroiling us in a war. I don't think anyone doubts, or no one should doubt, that Vladimir Putin never would have gone into Ukraine if Donald Trump was still president. And Hamas never would have been stupid enough to invade Israel with Donald Trump still president. It just wouldn't have happened. In fact, Hamas did that to try and undermine the Abraham Accords, the next stage of that agreement, which was set to go into effect, which had been very, very good for Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Israeli relations with those countries, as well as other countries in the Middle East. So they wanted everything they could to try and stop that. And they, they, they have sort of sidetracked it for the time being. So you see all of these things that have been written about Donald Trump, all of these... Um, negative things. The sad part of all of this is that even though this has been the company line of the mainstream media that they've been towing uh, since Trump burst on the national scene, but especially after he became president, the sad truth is the opposition, the current president of the United States, is all of those things. He is all of those things. He is the true fascist. Where else, other than in banana republics and totalitarian regimes, do you see the current political power structure, the current president or prime minister or what a premier, whatever his title is in that respective country, mobilize the agencies of government against their chief political opponent, weaponize them in such a way as to try and remove him as an opposition because they simply don't want to face him at the ballot box because they don't think they can defeat him. That is the hallmark of a fascist. We also know that, that Joe Biden is corrupt. They accuse Trump of corruption. No one is more corrupt than Joe Biden. No one has found anything corrupt that Donald Trump has done. They tried to impeach the man twice. They could come up with nothing. Joe Biden, even in this case with Jack Smith, the Presidential Records Act. Let me explain something to you. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. The President of the United States is governed by the Presidential Records Act. He does not have to abide by any other law with respect to documents like other people do. Vice Presidents are not protected by the Presidential Records Act, and neither are Senators. All of the documents that Donald Trump had in his possession— were from his administration. He's pr protected by the Presidential Records Act, and he has the exclusive authority to declassify those things anytime he wants. Now, if you want to say that there were certain things that weren't declassified and that probably should have been in the National Archives, you could make that argument if you really want to, but that's more of like an administrative violation or a violation of procedure. It's not something that you can prosecute an ex-president for. On the other hand, Joe Biden had documents 
that were found during his term as president. But these documents were not from his term as president. These documents were from when he was a vice president and he was a senator, where he had no such right, enjoyed no such privilege to have these things in his possession. And they were kept in a very, very careless manner in a garage with his Corvette, not protected, not guarded by the Secret Service like Trump's documents were in Mar-a-Lago, not in a secure facility. Not, not just anyone can walk into Mar-a-Lago, but any punk could have burglarized Joe Biden's home. And we now know that in some of his properties with these classified documents that were found um, were present, that Hunter Biden was staying there, presumably because he was accessing these documents in his uh, uh, nefarious business dealings as the front man for the Biden family. And we have this new news report, which I just saw earlier today that was placed on Twitter. I want to go through this with you. Oops, I just lost that. I just had the window and I closed it out. Let me see if I can bring it back for you. Uh, This was shocking. Very shocking. Now listen to this. Records reveal that Biden had his personal lawyer send a FedEx driver to the Penn Biden Center to pick up boxes of White House documents on November 2nd of 2022. This was the day before November 3rd, the date that the National Archives arrived at the Penn Biden Center to retrieve classified White House documents discovered there. Well, if they were only discovered there on November 3rd, how did he send his lawyer to retrieve other documents on November 2nd? What must have been in those documents that the Biden lawyers and Biden didn't want the National Archives to see? We'll never know, because we don't know where they are now. The Biden lawyers took it. And that means that some nondescript, non-investigated, non-security cleared FedEx driver was in possession of classified White House documents. What if he made a few copies while he was there? This whole thing speaks to lunacy. More and more, it's apparent just how corrupt, how deep in corruption, how much beholding the Biden administration is to our enemies, particularly uh, the chai And I think the American public is beginning to get it. This article here I came across in the Times about the latest national poll— I'm going to read this article, not in its entirety. I'll skip around, but I want to communicate the, uh, the relevant information. Former President Donald Trump now leads President Joe Biden by four points. This is on a national scale. In a potential 2024 presidential matchup. Now, I remember something before I go any further. Four points may not sound like a lot, but you have to understand that's on a national poll, and that's in the popular vote. And those votes, that vote total is skewed by the fact that you have so many uh, votes in super blue states like California uh, and New York and Massachusetts and Illinois that offset the votes in some smaller red states. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many people vote in California or how many fraudulent votes they can come up with. 
if they only got 54 electoral votes and they can't get any more, no matter how hard they try, until the next census, when they determine the redistribution of, of uh, congressional representation. 54 electoral votes, that's all they can get. So this, in practical matters, the lead is probably much more substantial. Now, a survey conducted by the Emerson College released on Wednesday shows that President Trump has maintained his previous level of support of 47 percent, while Biden's has seen his drop from 45 to 43. An additional 10 percent of respondents are unsure which candidate they would vote for. The eyes of the nation are trained on Biden as the likely Democrat nominee. Now, I don't know when they're going to make this switch, but I think they have to know that he can't win. He can't win in any legitimate race. And as much as they cheated last time, they're going to have to cheat in such a gross, over-the-top, obvious fashion this time that everyone's going to recognize it as cheating. So I don't know that they can do that again. I think they're looking for a substitute. I know Gavin Newsom would like to run. I know Michelle Obama does not want to run, but they're putting pressure on her to run. So the question becomes, what do they do? They take a Hail Mary and try and let Biden take it all the way to the convention, and then at the convention, pump up Michelle Obama as some other miracle savior. And it would have to be somebody like Michelle Obama, not a retread like Hillary Clinton, because they want the window of opportunity to be extremely small for the press to ask any real questions about Michelle Obama. They would like it to be where it's just, oh, broke the glass ceiling, second woman to run for president, first African-American woman to run for president. Won't it be great when she wins? We will have the, not only her husband was the first African-American president, but we're going to have the first woman president. And how fitting it is that the first woman president is also the first African-American woman president. And I can just hear it now. All the firsts they're going to try and speak about to sort of drown out the like, well, what about all those negative articles she wrote in law school and college about the country? What about the fact that until her husband ran, she said she was never proud of her country? What about all of this uber leftist communist stuff they were involved in in their younger days? Uh, none of this counts. They just don't want there to be sufficient time for people to contemplate these things and ask about it. So that may be in the cards, but let's go a little further with this article because there's some very, very troubling things in here for the Bidens and for the Democrats. It says here that the survey indicated that the number of undecided voters and the number of those who voted for neither President Trump nor Biden increased if a third-party candidate were added to the hypothetical situation. When a third-party independent candidate like Robert Kennedy Jr., Cornel West and Jill Stein are added to the ballot. He had those three. President Trump's support goes down, but it only goes down from 47 to 42. And President Biden's falls to 36. So President Trump would still have the plurality of the voting and he would win, much in the same way that Bill Clinton won election uh, in his first election, I think, with 43% of the vote because Ross Perot split the vote between him and George Herbert Walker Bush. So he didn't ever have 50%. And for all the popularity they want to tell you about Bill Clinton 
in two elections, he never received more than 50% of the vote. He received, I think, 47 in his second term. It was more popular. But he never received 50%. So it's very, and he was won handily. So I think you're going to find um, that's not going to be an impediment to President Trump. Now, compare with this time last year when President Biden was leading President Trump. The former President Trump's uh, recent surge in popularity is all the more surprising. Female voters, the people they want you to believe hate Donald Trump. Female voters showed the biggest drop in support for Joe Biden. Last November, quote, Biden led Trump by four points, whereas this November he trails Trump by four. That's an eight-point shift. This is from, according to Spencer Kimball, who is the executive director of the Emerson College Polling Group. Quote, several key groups have shifted in the past year. Biden led at this time last year among women by seven points, which has reduced to a point this year. The survey pointed out significant changes when compared with a similar national poll conducted last year. One notable change is in the level of support among various groups of people. For example, there's been a 15-point net shift among black voters who voted for President Biden in 2020. Last year, the level of support among this group was 61%. This year, it's down to 47 Similar changes in Latino voters. Similar change in voters under 50 and voters with four-year college degrees. The president's disapproval has stayed the same this month, while his approval has dropped by four points. The president's approval is the lowest it has been this calendar year, similar to what it was this time last year when his approval was at 39%. Now, the poll also went in to look at other internal matters and explored how excited voters were about the upcoming election. It turns out that 64% of the voters are either very or somewhat excited, with 35% saying they were very excited and 29% somewhat excited. Uh, 29% saying they were somewhat excited. I can guarantee you that most of the people who are very excited are Trump people because we realize that the country is going down the toilet and we're looking for any election to get us out of this mess. And most people who are dissatisfied with the current president. Um, excitement varies among candidate supporters. 46% of Trump voters expressing very high excitement. Just what I said. 29% of Biden voters express very high excitement. Only 26% of voters under 30 are reported to be very excited about the election. That's because people that young haven't lived long enough to realize that the country is being stolen right out from under them. And so they're probably still being seduced by stories of how Trump is the evil man and Biden is the good man. And since it's apparent to even the dumbest of people that Biden really can't win uh, because he can't really discharge his duties, uh, there's not many much enthusiasm among people who are supporting that candidate. In a general election between Nikki Haley and Joe Biden, they're tied. 38% with 25% undecided. Go figure. They're tied. 
I'm looking down here. I thought I saw a similar. There's nothing here that shows the uh, face up against Biden and DeSantis. But in other polls I've read, at least not in this Emerson poll, the only one who's consistently beating Biden is Donald Trump. People recognize that the country is in such bad shape that without someone as fearless as him that's willing to take on this corrupt swamp that we have in Washington and right this ship, it's never going to happen. So they're all standing behind him. And this may be uh, something for you all to consider as to what is driving uh, people's predilections for the candidates they're seeking. Joe Biden's approval rating is terrible. Uh, 38% with a 50% disapproval rating. With 37% of those surveyed saying that his handling of the Israeli crisis was poor by any standard you care to name. And lastly, if you want to see the issues again driving the campaign, when asked to name the most pressing issues facing the country, 39% said the economy. Does that surprise anyone, really? When Trump, it's not a rhetorical question, when Trump left office, the home mortgage rate was about 3.5%. The current home mortgage rate is about 7%. Your mortgages are doubling because of the interest factor. A mortgage you could have gotten for 1200 is now costing you 2400 a month. So your buying power, the American dream of being able to own your own home and live in privacy and comfort and security, is evaporating before your very eyes. And it's doing so at an accelerated rate. So, and you see what the price of goods are. Shortages of supply, inflation, uh, is no price of gas. There's no reason that anyone should be shocked that the economy at 39% is the number one issue on the minds of the voters. This is followed by immigration at 13%. Another big number. This is followed by threats to democracy at 12%. Well, since Donald Trump is not in power... And since the Democrats control the White House and the Senate, with the Congress just recently being controlled, only a few months ago, or last year, rather, last election, by the um, Republicans, um, it's, it's fair to say that the threats to democracy they're referring to are threats coming from the current administration because they see the weaponization of government against the current president's chief political opponent. And I laughed the other day when some commentator on a morning talk show was saying, wait till the actual convention rolls around, the, Rep the Democrats have been taking it pretty easy on Trump, 
uh, in terms of criticism. What planet did you just land in on? They're not formally criticizing him because they have proxies doing it. All these prosecutions are all bullshit. They're not real prosecutions. They're real in the sense that they're taking place in real courts, but they're not based on real bona fide legal issues. These are just people that are using Democrat pawns in the criminal justice system to visit uh, destruction upon the chief opponent to President Joe Biden, and they're masking it as a legitimate uh, criminal justice inquiry. It was nothing of the kind. So they don't have to pour on to me. They can just say, oh, he's such a bad man that all these things are happening to him. Nothing to do with us, nothing to see here. That's, that's what's going on there. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But, and beyond that, we have health care at 10%, crime at 8%, abortion access at 5%, and education at 5%. Now, of all of those things, I was really shocked that abortion was as low as it was. Because if you listen to all of these pundits, you would think that almost every woman was a single-issue voter and was only concerned with abortion access. I was also surprised that education was as low as it was at 5%. I thought more people would be concerned about um, the education their, their children are getting. They also looked at the primaries. Uh, this is pretty shocking to me. In the Democratic primary, 66% of the respondents that were Democrats planned to support President Biden. In the Republican primary, President Trump leads at 64%. On the, but there's a lot of people running. So 64% is much more impressive. Right now, Biden is the only declared candidate in the Democratic Party. On the generic congressional 2024 ballot, 44% say they plan to vote for Republicans and 43% plan to vote for Democrats. So that's split that way. But I think that if President Trump is on the ballot, you're going to see that those last two numbers aren't going to mean anything because Trump, when he's on the ballot, has very long coattails. So I tell people all the time, don't go by what you just saw in this recent election as it being a, a, a big disappointment in terms of Republican performance because Trump isn't on the ballot. When Trump is on the ballot, his support is strong and his coattails are long. So that's my take on what is currently going on with respect to the crisis in Hamas and Joe Biden and uh, this talk of fascist control and who's really responsible. Everything the Democrats have been accusing of Donald Trump, Donald Trump of, they themselves have done. And they've done it to the excess. Donald Trump is not the one who's controlling people's lives. Donald Trump is not the one who weaponized government against his political enemies. The Obamas started doing that crap with the IRS. Uh, going against conservatives, auditing them and targeting them, and Biden is cut from the same cloth. He's a thief, he's corrupt, and he has to go. And so, on this day before Thanksgiving, I want to give thanks that we still do have a country. I'm not comforted by the fact that it's imperiled, but I give thanks that the man upstairs has sent us a man who's a fearless warrior, who, if we give the opportunity will rescue this country from its own short-sightedness and so that it will continue to remain a land of freedom 
and its government will be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, not of the elites, by the elites, and for the elites. So tomorrow when you're gathered around your Thanksgiving table with your family and loved ones, give thanks for having each other. Give thanks for the blessings that you have been uh, blessed with. And give thanks that there is still hope to salvage this, the greatest country that the history of the earth has ever seen. Blessed by the hand of God and defended by patriots. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury. Thank you.